Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you. We're going to be in the uh, holiday spirit today, our holiday tradition, our conversation we hold each year. I've done this a number of years with author Ace Collins. He wrote a book a number of years ago about the stories behind some of our favorite Christmas songs. I always enjoy talking with Ace, and we've always gotten a lot of good response from people that enjoy hearing where these songs that we sing each year, so much a part of our lives, uh, where do they come from? What's the stories behind them? How, How did they originate? Some very interesting stories, and Ace will share some of those with us on today's program. Also, we have the latest Ag Equipment sales numbers. We'll talk with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers on our program today. So glad you've joined us. Let's kick things off with some news. Todd Neely, DTN reporter, joins us. Todd, thanks for being with us. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, We finally, finally getting, um, (laughs) better late than ever, I guess, some information from EPA on when we might get the RVO numbers, uh, the levels set for 2021 under the Renewable Fuel Standard. But we're going to still be waiting a little while to get those, aren't we? Yeah, I think so, Mike. You know, um, EPA put up on its unified agenda, I believe it was yesterday, maybe it was sooner, uh, that they are working toward having the final rule by June of next year. Uh, of course, you know, when they put dates up on an agenda, it's it's uh, it's really not set in stone. It's still something that's kind of hanging out there. Uh, but the goal of EPA is to to have those proposed numbers out by the end of this month. Uh, We'll see if that happens. You know, it's already quite a bit late. It was supposed to have been finalized at the end of uh, November. Um, And so here we are. We might be a good six, seven months, if not longer, past the the deadline. Yeah, it was supposed to be finalized at the end of last month. Now it might not be until the middle of next year. Now, of course, in the meantime, we've got a transition coming in the with administration change and that means right. new epa administrator how will that impact us you think well you know it's interesting because uh, <clears throat> based on this on this new deadline uh that definitely would put it into the next administration uh and so i think you know it's going to be interesting to see if whether this is one of those things that might be lost in the shuffle somewhere you would hope not but when you uh, when you consider that you know we still don't have an actual nominee for EPA administrator and uh, you know there's just a lot that's still kind of in flux. I, I really think that this could possibly push it back a little bit. Uh, but then again, you know this is an agenda set by the agency, and uh, you know they at least have it on the radar. So maybe maybe this does get done. Well, you mentioned we still do not know the choice for the next EPA administrator. We thought we kind of had an idea, but uh, looks like that's uh, maybe uh, some twists and turns here. It looks like they may be looking at another possibility because of some pushback. Yeah, you know, there's other names that are being floated around. You know, it kind of appeared from the get-go that Mary Nichols uh, with the California Air Resources Board was kind of the lead candidate. Uh, we're hearing other names. There's a Michael Regan who's uh, who's worked in North Carolina's Department of Environmental Quality. 
Uh, his name has kind of been thrown out there. He's actually got a background with EPA. Uh, then we've got others. Uh, there's a there's a law professor at University of New York, New York University, uh, Richard R- Revez. Uh, that's another name that's floated around. So it's really kind of up in the air. I mean, we're, you know, we kind of thought we knew where it might be going, and uh, the latest is that there's still uh, quite a bit of debate apparently going on behind the scenes. It's such a key appointment. I've often said the EPA administrator these days impacts agriculture, impacts farmers and ranchers even more than the Secretary of Agriculture does. So it's obviously when that yeah. choice is made, that will send some signals about where the administration uh, wants to go with environmental policy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's it's no secret that with each administration, we see a different philosophy. It doesn't matter who comes into office, but uh, you know, the people change, the faces change, the policies change, and it's it's kind of one of those unsettling moments, I think, for people in agriculture when, when we have a change of administration. You know, with USDA, EPA, we, we just don't know until uh, nominees are put out there. Meanwhile, the uh, response to the choice of Tom Vilsack has been, for the most part, favorable. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday. Anytime yeah. you've been in a public office as long as he has in public life over this many years you're going to pick up a few (laughs) enemies along the way some people not thrilled with it but overall uh, the reaction has been pretty good I think a lot of it is because this is someone they know they've dealt with and uh, it brings a little bit of certainty or familiarity as we go into the next four years oh absolutely Bill Sack has a great track record with ag I think I think a lot of people both sides of the aisle uh, in this industry would have to agree that uh, Bill Sack is, uh, you know, he had a pretty good record with the eight years under Obama. Uh, he was very pro-ag. He was very pro-biofuels. Uh, pro he really worked pretty hard for, for the industry. I, um, You know, I, I think a lot of it's going to depend on what the next administration does in terms of their policy with USDA. If, if uh, Bill Sack is the same, admi- uh, the same ag secretary that he was under Obama, it would be a good thing. Uh, but it's going to depend a lot on uh, where the next administration wants to go. Meanwhile, we know there's going to be a new USDA chief economist. Yeah, Seth Meyer, uh, who's been with the USDA previously, he's uh, he's been an ag economist at the University of Missouri, and he's widely well known and well respected. He's uh, he's uh, you know I've heard him speak a couple of times, and he's very much uh, very on top of things. And I I think this is probably uh, you know it's a fairly important. Uh, you know, position in the USDA, and I think it's somebody that most people could agree on would be uh, would be good for that spot. And he'll take the place of Rob Johansson, who'll be uh, leaving that position. That it's that time where you kind of have to have a scorecard to keep track of all these uh, people yeah. coming and going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's going to be picking up here in the next month or so. We're going to see a lot of a lot of names in a lot of places. Yeah, and it's just. You don't know. It's like we talked about with EPA. You just don't know what, how much it's going to change during a transition. And some of these things that are kind of left in the balance, we wonder, yeah. you know, are they picked up? Are they kind of pushed aside? Time will tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, especially with EPA, I think, uh, you know, all the questions about biofuels and, and all the concerns, um, I don't think that, that that'll be lost on the next administration. I do think that they're probably well aware and uh, you know again we're going to just have to wait and see who's going to lead the agency and you know what what all is going to come from it it's a totally different uh, period of time 
And another big question, what will they do with, about waters of the U.S.? Will they push uh, to change right. the new rule that we just got? So we'll wait and see on that as well. All right, Todd, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Okay, up next, we're going to, again, it's a holiday tradition. I've done this for a number of years. Talked with author Ace Collins. We go back. He's done a lot of research. A few years ago, he wrote a book on stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. We sing them year after year at this time of year. But uh, where did some of these songs come from? Some of them go back centuries. We'll talk about it with author Ace Collins coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, joining us is Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. We're hearing about uh, shortages of, of beds and ICUs, the surge that's taking place. What can you tell us about how the system is holding up? We're experiencing some significant outbreaks of COVID in rural communities nationwide. These outbreaks are resulting in some states having positive testing rates over 50%, which is incredibly concerning as it relates to the number of individuals that will later need hospitalization, intensive care. And so our intensive care units are where I think we're having the most concern right now. That's where they're filling up. We're seeing 85, 95% occupancies in those units, uh, often just one or two beds away from overflow. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. 
a public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Each year at this time, I look forward to talking with author Ace Collins to talk about stories behind our favorite Christmas songs, a book he wrote uh, a number of years ago. And he's back with us. Ace, good to talk with you again. Good to visit with you all. I hope you're doing well in Bloomington and around the Midwest on farms and ranches everywhere. Yeah, you know, when we celebrate the holidays each year, we... We enjoy. I know I do. I enjoy hearing the Christmas songs, the Christmas music. I was talking with my grandson about this just the other day. He looks forward to that, and we sing those songs as we're riding in the car or truck or, or wherever it may be. Uh, there's so much a part of our holidays, and one thing I've learned in talking with you over the years, I had no idea where these so- some of these songs originated and how far back they go, and some of them do go back centuries. Some of them do. Uh, the oldest complete Christmas carol we sing is probably O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that dates back to the 900s. Uh, if you listen to that song carefully, there's only about a range of seven or eight notes. You can actually hear or, or visualize monks in, in, in Eastern European churches singing that song in Latin. I mean, you know, there's echoing off those, off those old uh, small little monastery uh, chapel walls, uh, and that's probably the oldest complete song that we, uh, that we sing to this day. Uh, Glory in Excelsis Deus, we call it Gloria now, at least part of that goes back to at least 130 A.D., because on that particular year, a church leader at that time uh, said whenever the second chapter of Luke is read, the congregation should all sing Gloria. And so that song even dates back further, or at least part of that song dates back further, whether it's just the chorus or whether there's some of the other words in it um, that go with it that we sing today, I don't know. But we do know that that edict was set forth in 130 A.D. And if you think about that, to consider the fact that we're still singing a song in one form or another, that everybody knew in 130 A.D. meant that it probably was 60, 70, 80 years older than that. And uh, you have no idea what that songwriter visualized or witnessed, uh, who he met, you know. And and so he could have actually seen some of the things that happened uh, in the lifetime of Jesus. And that's that's a remarkable element of song history that should make that song come alive. Uh, a bit more than than it does when you normally hear it or sing it. And, and by the way, if you look at a lot of hymnals, they'll call it a French carol because it was lost for many, many years and then was translated from Latin into into French about 250, 300 years ago. And, and so it's not really a French carol, uh, but it does, uh, it, it was saved by, by uh, some cleric in France that found it in files and and gave it back to us after a hiatus of, of hundreds of years. We're talking with author Ace Collins. He wrote a book a few years ago about the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. And Ace, like the season itself, uh, 
when those songs were written, they had a particular meaning at that time, but the meaning uh, it keeps going. And uh, the message now, here, here we are going through a pandemic, but the message is as strong and as important today as it was back then. Some circumstances change, but the overall message is the same. Well, you think about this. We we've seen probably eight or ten songs that survived the the, the great you know the Black Plague in Europe. Uh, we sing uh, scores of songs that, that survived the Spanish flu in World War II, and and these songs you know help people during those uncertain times just like they help us today. You know, you mentioned something about your grandson, and it's fascinating to me that you're sharing some of the same emotions and feelings when these songs come back every year because. Christmas music really does create a time machine uh, for your grandson. He's remembering things that may have happened last year, the year before, the year before that. For you, you may be remembering something that happened 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And and those mm-hmm. things come back in great clarity because of a song or, or an ornament or a tradition that you embrace. And suddenly the people from your past are very much alive. You, you picture them. You you see them. Um, I have a uh, I have an aunt who passed away with COVID a, a, about three weeks ago, and and every time I hear Elvis right now singing Blue Christmas because she's an Elvis fan, she's very much alive to me again. I picture her when she was younger. I I picture what she was like when she was babysitting me when I was a kid, and so Christmas has that ability to bring moments and people back to life. You can smell the smells. Uh, taste the taste, see the scenes in a clarity that we don't get any other time of the year. And it's because that music comes back every year to remind us of those people. So there's a a tremendous blessing, even in this bit of time when my family is not gathering for the holidays because of what we're going through, to have those songs and those traditions come back to remind us of the fact that, yeah, there are some incredible memories that we can dwell on and, and embrace this Christmas, even though we can't embrace those people. And it also reminds me, we're talking about music. Uh, you know, there was a tremendous hit by Bing Crosby in World War II called I'll Be Home for Christmas. Well, there were many people, including my grandfather in World War II, who didn't get to come home for two to three years. They had a child that was born while they were overseas fighting a war, and they didn't get to see that child until that child was over two years old. Those those people still had the faith to believe they would get back together at Christmas. And I think that's one of the things that we need to hang on to this year. So that music, like that song I just mentioned, uh, does that for us. It, it gives us that, that hope that things will become normal in 2021. We will have a Christmas again. We'll all gather around the table. There won't be empty places at that table. And we will once again unite as a family. Yeah, you you mentioned Bing Crosby. I mention this every year. One of the things I love about this time of year is Bing is back on the radio, and I I enjoy that. And you mentioned World War II. A lot of the songs that we uh, sing now and hear now, they re- they go back, trace back to that World War II time. They do. Uh, you know, I mentioned Bing um, on on I'll Be Home for Christmas, which is his second big World War II hit. His first one was White Christmas. Um, um, fascinating story behind that song because Irving Berlin wrote all the music for the for the uh, movie Holiday Inn, and um, when he played that music for Bing, 
he got to the last song that he wanted to play. It was a Christmas song, and he said, Dean, this one's not very good. I'm going to play it for you, but I guarantee you I'll write something better before we actually have to do the movie. And Bing heard the song and said, Irving, don't change a word. This song is perfect. Well, Bing was not planning on singing that song until Christmas of 1942, because the movie wasn't coming out until 1942, so there was no reason to, to kind of jump the movie. And then Pearl Harbor happened, and a few weeks later on his Christmas Eve broadcast, Bing felt the need to introduce White Christmas to the world. And, and people who were listening to that national broadcast all over the United States really clung to that song as if it was a prayer. And, and people everywhere started calling the radio stations wanting to hear it again and again. And so even though the record was not released until 1942, White Christmas was a song that gave people a lot of inspiration and hope in the days right after Pearl Harbor. And, and so that's one of the, of the three big Christmas hits from World War II. The third one being Judy Garland's hit, uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, uh, which was a very uh, solemn, somber, sad song when it was written. And Judy felt that while it fit Meet Me in St. Louis, the movie and the music for that, she also realized that it didn't fit the mood of the country. You did not need to, in 1943 and 1944, have people listening to a song that had lyrics that, you know, this may be our our Christmas last. You know, things may be in the past. You know, we may never see each other again. You didn't need that message. And so Judy had the songwriters rewrite the lyrics to that song before she would record it. And, of course, it became her signature song. You mentioned being, we mentioned... Uh, Judy, in truth, having a Christmas hit makes you immortal. I mean, you know, if you've got a mm -hmm. big Christmas hit, you're going to come back every Christmas forever. If you don't have a Christmas hit, your music's pretty much forgotten. You know, Dinah Shore charted over 400 times, never had a Christmas hit. We don't listen to the music of Dinah Shore anymore, but we listen to the music of Perry Como. We listen to the music of Bing Crosby. And those songs come back to visit us. Gene Autry with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus right. come to the town. Those songs come back, and so entire generations get reintroduced to music because of these Christmas hits. Yeah, that's why, as you say, artists want to get that big Christmas hit. It keeps them uh, on the radio uh, almost forever in some cases, it seems like. And there's a great connection between those Christmas songs and movies, as you pointed out. We'll talk much more about this with author Ace Collins, our holiday special, looking at the stories behind our, some of our favorite Christmas songs. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. 
visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Egg Network. I'm Kirsten Raw with a market check here on this Tuesday's trading session. Grain markets are mixed with row crops weaker while wheat contracts cling to small gains. Most egg contracts are in a consolidated pattern at the moment, awaiting additional input from either South American weather, USDA data sets, or Chinese buying patterns. Volume should decline even further next week as the Christmas holiday approaches. On the Board of Trade, March corn trading two and a half cent lower. At 421 and a half cent, the May contract down two and a half cent at 424 and three quarters. March soybeans down five and three quarters at 1168 and three quarters. The November contract down a nickel at 1054. Minneapolis spring wheat March trading two and a fraction higher at 559 and three quarters. The May contract up two and a fraction at 568 and a half cent. Kansas City wheat, Kansas City wheat March up four and a half cent at 566 and three quarters. Chicago wheat. March up a nickel at 6.01 and a half cent. Underlining weakness in beef and pork prices continues to create growing uncertainty about the ability to sustain recent future support and maintain buyer interest heading into the holiday seasons. Packer inquiry is limited today and bids remain elusive, asking prices are around $110 plus in the south and not fully established in the north. It looks like significant trade volume will be delayed until Wednesday or later. Beef cutouts are expected to be lower with light to moderate box movement. On the Board of Trade, February live cattle trading seven cents lower at 113.02. The April contract down a dime at 117.27. March feeder cattle up 65 at 141.25. The April contract up 57 at 142.42. April lean hogs trading 30 cents higher at 69.12. The February contract up 27 at 65.95. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back as we continue our holiday tradition of talking with author Ace Collins about the songs behind some of our favorite Christmas songs. And Ace, we were talking about artists want to get that big Christmas hit because it keeps coming back year after year after year. Uh, Many have tried, and you mentioned Dinah Shore, and some were not able to accomplish that. But... uh, 
uh, once you get that, as you said, you're always going to get airtime every Christmas time. Uh, some in recent years have been successful, uh, such as you know a song like "Mary, Did You Know" has probably become this generation's big Christmas song, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we I think we'll still be listening to that song a long time from now. And, you know, when you look at the story behind that song, Mark Lowry wrote the lyrics, and Lowry was assigned to write what they call bridge uh, narration uh, during a Christmas cantata for his church in Houston, Texas. They did a living Christmas tree kind of set up every year. And in the process of um, of working with it, he got to thinking about, you know, what would have been like in that first Christmas? And then he kind of pictured himself as a newspaper reporter covering it and covering not the birth of Jesus, but the death of Jesus, and was, was going to interview Mary. And he asked himself all these questions like a reporter would. It took him about two years to find uh, Scott Bell to write the music for it. And they release it, and it proves that there is always a new point of view that can be used even after these thousands upon thousands of Christmas songs that we've had. People can come up with a new way to look at the holiday. And certainly Mark Lowry did that. Uh, Kathy Matea had the original hit on that song. It's been recorded hundreds of times since then, and, and therefore that is a song from our generation. And it may never be associated with a particular artist. Uh, I, because a lot of people are playing versions other than Kathy Mateo's version right now, but the song is going to stick with us, much like uh, hits from the late 50s and early 60s, Do You Hear What I Hear and uh, The Little Drummer Boy stick with us in a variety of forms. Uh, you know, going back to Bing, though, hundreds of people have, well, thousands of people have recorded White Christmas, but the definitive version is, is Bing's, you know, uh, hundreds of people have recorded Blue Christmas, including uh, you know a dozen before Elvis cut it, and yet the, the definitive version is Elvis. And, and so you you have certain songs that are attached to certain artists. I think uh, 50 years from now, people will still be listening to Mariah Carey's uh, hit, you know, All I Want for Christmas is You. Uh, I think there are certain songs that are... <clears throat> or with those certain artists that we're not going to leave, to lose. And, and, and that, I think, is what really makes Christmas special when you can have that. A little, by the way, a rural note here that is so much fun and should be fun for our listeners right now who are uh, looking out the window and, and in snow-covered areas. Uh, in 1840 in Medford, Massachusetts, uh, a uh, community leader assigned his son to write a song for the community Thanksgiving uh, service, which was an outdoor non-religious service. It was just the community was doing a service, and he wanted the children's choir to sing something. And the guy, the young college student who was supposed to write the song, couldn't come up with anything, and he kept hearing this noise outside his door and went outside his door, and there were a bunch of boys, teenage boys, attempting to impress girls by racing their sleds. They were literally drag racing their horse-drawn sleds. And so this guy was so inspired, he went back in and wrote a song that was performed by the Children's Choir in 1840 in Medford, Massachusetts. It was so popular, they asked them to sing it again at the community Christmas uh, Eve uh, presentation, and people went back to Boston and New York 
thinking this song had been written specifically for Christmas. The name of the song is Jingle Bells. It is how we picture an American Christmas, yet it was written for Thanksgiving. It was not written for Christmas, and yet it inspired Courier Knives and the Christmas cards you get and the Hollywood movies that followed. It became, it's been a hit on the charts many, many times, and yet Jingle Bells is the best-known Thanksgiving song in the world, and it's nothing more than an 1840s Beach Boy song, if you think about it, about about young men trying to impress girls by saying who was the fastest with the vehicle they had. And I think it's absolutely right. fascinating that the image around the world of Christmas is based on, you know, that American uh, song written for Thanksgiving presentation. Well, when you talk about image, I, I often think about the song, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That that seems to be a part of Christmas, but I've never roasted chestnuts on a on a fire, and I don't know how many people do, but that's kind of an enduring image because of that song. Oh, and I, you know, I, I've always been curious as to what they what they taste like. I, I would really like to taste a, a roasted chestnut. Uh, you go back to 1946, Mel Torme and one of his co-writing partners were writing music for a Hollywood musical. There was, you know, a lot of musicals, very popular during that time. And it was the hottest day of the year in California. And they, they were wearing Hawaiian shirts and shorts and sweating, drinking lemonade and, and trying to stay cool. And finally, Mel got the idea to talk about, talk about winters in New England because they were both from New England. But they were talking about the memories of their winters in New England. And and Jack Frost nipping at your nose, and then the chestnuts roasting in an open fire. They start talking, and they realize they had to potentially be writing a song. So they paused from writing the musical, that they were writing music for the musical, and started writing those lyrics down. And within 30 minutes, they'd come up with this song on the hottest day of the year. And they then got into a debate on who do we take this song to? Well, you know, the overriding thought was you take it to Bing Crosby because he's had these these monster hits. But Mel Torme wanted to take it to Nat King Cole. Well, the, the publisher and everyone else said that's not a good idea because there's there are some stations in the United States that will not play in a, a, a black artist's music. But I don't know what Torme had on these guys, but he convinced them to take it to his friend, Nat King Cole, Cole recorded it, and in 1946 broke the color line before Jackie Robinson or Rosa Parks did and had a monster hit on Chestnut's Roast Again Open Fire that's called The Christmas Song. And, of course, it has become an important part of Christmas as well. And much more than Mona Lisa or Unforgettable, we remember Nat King Cole for this song. Yeah, those are amazing stories. Before we run out of time, uh, tell us this, the uh, story behind Silent Night. Go back to 1918, excuse me, 1818 in a small, uh, you know, village of Obendorf in Austria. And a young priest, 25 years old, named Joseph Moore, is about to have his first ever service that he's done by himself. He's conducting the service. And he goes to the church, and the organ won't work. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of wonderful legends about why the organ wouldn't work, including the mice ate the bellows. Actually, it was just an old organ that had been causing problems for quite a while and just gave up the ghost. It just would not work. And he was in a panic because he had based his entire service on music that the choir was going to sing. He ran across town in this freezing weather to his friend Franz Gruber, 
And Gruber, and he talked, and Gruber said, I'll play the guitar for the choir. And he said, no, the music doesn't work that way, is what Moore told him. So they, the songs are too classical. And they started uh, Gruber to say, well, let's write something. And that is when Moore remembered that two years before, in 1816, while visiting an uncle and walking through a woods on, on uh, Christmas Eve in the snow on this clear night, that he had written a poem about his feelings about Christmas. He went back and found that poem and brought it back to Gruber. They wrote music for it, and that night, Silent Night, or Silly Night, I like it not, became the song that saved the Christmas Eve service. Well, we would not know that song today if somebody hadn't had to fix the organ. And so the person who came in to fix the organ asked, what did you do for Christmas music? And that is when the priest picked up his own guitar, played in Silent Night. The man who fixed the organ wrote down the lyrics and memorized the music. Well, 30 years later, this priest is walking through Cologne, Germany. This is a little poor priest who has never, never gotten out of the little towns he's been a priest in. And he hears his song coming from a cathedral. And he, he has not played it since that night that had saved the service. He's wondering, how did this song get here? And he walks into this choir is singing Silent Night, and it's beautiful, and he's overcome, and nobody will believe him that he wrote the song, because they have been singing it for a decade or more in this church, and he died without getting credit for writing the song, but Franz Gruber, who was still alive, produced the original piece of music, and publishing companies started to publish it under their names. What is interesting about that is it was the organ man playing Johnny Appleseed for Silent Night that that took that song everywhere and taught it to everyone. So by the time the priest heard it, Silent Night, as performed in that Cologne, Germany cathedral, Silent Night had already uh, gone to more than 40 different countries, been translated in multiple languages, and was the favorite Christmas carol in a place that the priest would never visit. That's the United States. Wow. In the season of, of miracles, that is a miracle there, and, and we still enjoy that song. I love that story. Ace, I wish we had more time. I look forward to this every year. Let's do it again next year, okay? I can't wait. Look forward to it. Y'all have a merry and a very mighty Christmas this year. That's great. Thank you so much for being with us, and Merry Christmas to you and your family, Ace. And uh, we encourage people to find that book that you wrote a few years ago, Stories Behind Our Favorite Christmas Songs. That is author Ace Collins. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? 
Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and... His camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. And our guest this week is Chad Christensen, diesel fuels technical expert at CHS. We're talking about how to keep your equipment running at its peak during cold weather. So, Chad, with winter settling in, that, of course, doesn't mean the work stops. So what happens to the diesel fuel in equipment when temperatures drop, and, and why does that matter? Well, like you said, there, there's still a lot of work to be done, and, and winter comes with some of the most demanding conditions on equipment and fuel systems. And, and when the temperatures begin to drop, we see diesel equipment having issues starting, and that's really due to filter plugging. And so filters will plug either due to wax fallout in that number two diesel or a small amount of water has frozen, and, and it won't allow that diesel to flow properly. And so a regular tank maintenance program can eliminate uh, that water issue. And then seasonal blending with number one diesel and cold flow improvers should help eliminate that, uh, that filter plugging due to the fuel gelling. So when considering both cost and performance, what's the best way to determine the best fuel blend? Well, I'd work closely with your, your local cooperative energy manager. Um, they've got a really good understanding of the fuel's uh, cold flow characteristics in their area. And so through their knowledge and experience, they will likely recommend it, uh, a terminal blended product that eliminates that guesswork of DIY blending, which can be really costly if done incorrectly. And, and they would likely suggest a, 
a winterized premium diesel fuel like Cinex Winter Master for those extreme cold temperatures during the heart of the winter, and then Ruby Field Master seasonally enhanced for those late fall and early spring shoulder seasons. That's Chad Christensen, diesel fuels technical expert at CHS. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Time for our monthly visit with Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, as we take a look at the latest ag equipment sales numbers. Kurt, happy holidays. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what do the latest numbers tell us? Well, I'll tell you what, we are continuing to see some nice numbers in tractor and combine sales in, in the United States. In fact, November saw pretty much an increase across the board. Um, continuing with this trend of under 40 horsepower tractors leading the way, but I'll tell you what, we saw some nice improvement in 40 to 100, hus- 100 horsepower and 100 plus horsepower tractors as well. So good numbers for November. What really jumps out about you to you about these numbers and the trends you've seen this year? Well, I think uh, the, the what jumps out to me, if you look at the year in total, is that uh, 2020 has been a little bit of a surprise. Uh, we were we were entering into the year thinking that this was going to be uh, you know a flat year, um, perhaps even uh, you know just you know pretty pretty flat to normal. Uh, but we've seen, you know, in the case of under 40 horsepower tractors, we've seen a 20% year-over-year growth in that market. In 40 to 100 plus horsepower tractors, we've seen a 12% growth. Overall, tractors have seen a growth of about 16%. You know, largely driven by those smaller tractors, but still, in we in a year where we were expecting it to be flat, I'll take 16% growth. Mm-hmm. And the market rally here at the end of the year has certainly helped with attitudes and, and financial uh, prospects going into next year. You bet. There's a lot of things that go into, you know, into the purchase consideration for, for, uh, for new tractors and combines. And, you know, you know to, to, to complete the thought on these small tractors, I mean, a lot of that's not is non-farm usage. So those are people that are, you know, Buying a tractor for their acreage or spend a little bit more time at home, um, and that's that made that's that's kind of a, a little bit of an anomaly, you know, as a positive result of the uh, of the pandemic. But I'll tell you, these these row crop tractors, articulated four wheel drives, and even combines, seeing that growth really is a pretty good indication of of attitudes out there in farm country, where, you know, we've seen a nice little rally in prices. We've seen some good crops around the around the nation. We see sort of, um, uh, you know. Uh, Perhaps some some progress on the trade front. I think we see you know some optimism with the pandemic ending, uh, and just you know general uh, you know attitudes and in, in, uh, uh, appreciation for where food comes from tends to boost the morale of farmers out there, and, and that's uh, making people feel comfortable to invest in their equipment, invest in their capital equipment. We're talking with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, what? would be a disturbing trend or an area of concern that you would have as we head into a new year? Well, I'll tell you one thing that, that 
that uh, you know I think we learned you know seven years ago and we saw markets on fire just just you know everything was looking really good is that we kind of set the bar and saying this becomes a new normal and I think what we do have to be a little bit cautious of is recognize that you know specifically in these smaller horsepower tractors this may be an anomaly um, I mean obviously that market's been growing for years, but it hasn't been growing at this rate. And so I think what we have to recognize is that, uh, that uh, you know, we're still in a replacement market. Uh, you know, we're still, the vast majority of, of tractors and combine are, are purchased for, uh, for row crop producers. Uh, and those markets are volatile. Those markets are, uh, you know, come at the, uh, at the mercy of a lot of things beyond their control. Having said that, good farmers, good businessmen uh, are making good capital decisions. Farm income is showing, you know, some really strong signs of life in 2020. Much of that's government support, but I think there's also some underlying principles that that may lead to, you know, continued optimism for farm income in 2021 and beyond. Did the business model change this year? Didn't have the farm shows, uh, didn't have people out in big crowds looking at equipment like we've had in the past. Hopefully we'll be getting back to that soon. But has the way dealers done business, has the industry changed? Uh, any of those changes do you think will, will stick around even after the pandemic? Well, I think uh, without question, farmers like to get together at events, farm shows, you know, conferences, and and looking forward to to being face to face with farmers in the in the very near future but what we i think we have learned is that we can do business virtually in in the farms community in the farm space and i think some of those trends are going to continue uh, specifically as, it re, as we talk about some of this new cutting edge technology that shows up in tractors and combines and all kinds of equipment um, that tech support uh, being able to, you know, giving a farmer access to sort of the best-in-class tech support, perhaps remotely, is a real great opportunity that I think will continue on, you know, once this pandemic clears, where we'll see a lot more uh, kind of that technical support done virtually because it gives the farmer access to some of the some of the best people in the nation and the world to be able to to solve some of those problems. So that's kind of a good thing. But I think, you know, nothing beats kicking tires. And I think what we are sort of recognizing is that, uh, you know, everyone, everyone does want to see this new technology in person. They've, they've uh, you know, kind of continuing to involve their, evolve their relationships with, uh, with their farmers and their, or with their distributors and their dealers. But I think when we, when we get back together face-to-face, I think you're going to see, you know, a renewed interest in the technology and the ability to show off this technology that uh, that uh, will will be in place for years to come. So it's pretty darn exciting. But yeah, there are some there's some there's some changes in the business model of how we how we communicate. But nothing beats face to face. Well, we'll talk again next time we talk. It'll be 2021. Uh, we'll we'll have some more review of 2020. It's been an incredible year, a challenging year. We know in many ways and things we never thought we would see we've seen but uh, the the numbers you've given us each month we've said this many times uh, all things considered have been pretty good all things considered they've been pretty good i mean i'm looking forward to uh to closing up the year strong i mean i think anytime you know if you would have asked me on january 1 how we were going to end the year i'd be happy with the numbers you're giving me right now so uh, i'm optimistic all right kurt thanks a lot happy holidays to you we'll talk again next month Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, joining us here 
on AOA. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today.